Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by three-time returning Decouple guest, Maddie Sizervinsky. Maddie is the director of Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal and a women's leader in and wait, women's leader in energy fellow at the Atlantic Council. Maddie, a warm welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again, Chris. I love coming on Decouple. So Maddie, it's no secret why you're here. The uh, pro-nuclear advocacy world had a win. So I'm interested in in talking to someone who is kind of you know, lives in state, in the state of Illinois, where Byron and Dresden were just saved, and who has been so intimately involved in the struggle. So I don't know where to start off here, Maddie, but maybe just help us with uh, the kind of not so breaking news, but what, what's just happened? What's what's relevant? This was a big battle for me personally. You know, it was my first as officially the executive director of the campaign for a green nuclear deal, but also I live here and definitely for the long term. So it was like, you know, home turf. It would have been doubly embarrassing to take a loss on this one. And from the beginning, it looked like we sort of had it in the bag. Or I think a lot of people took for granted that, of course, these plants were going to continue to run. So let me back all the way up. When J.B. Pritzker was elected, he said right away that climate change was going to be a key issue for his administration. He wanted to pass a comprehensive energy plan for the state of Illinois that pushed us towards a clean energy future between the years 2030 and 2050. So the action for the pro-nuclear you know, battle, so to speak, began in August of last year when Exelon announced it was going to prematurely close two of the six nuclear plants in the state. Byron, which had 20 years left in its license to operate, and Dresden, which had 10 years left. And they were going to close in a year's time. So it was supposed to be September and November of this year, respectively. And the basic issue was that they were getting outcompete in the market by historically cheap natural gas and subsidized renewables. So this sort of set the the clock for how long legislators had to act if they were going to preserve those two nuclear plants. And to keep things relatively simple, because there's a lot of acronyms that all kind of sound the same, I'm going to say there were environmentalists on one side and labor on the other. That's a little reductive, but there you have it. Um, So on the one side, you have environmentalists, you know, your traditional Sierra Club, NRDC, Illinois Environmental Council, and they create a coalition and put forth a bill that says, we are going to get 100% of our electricity from renewables by the year 2050, which you kind of have to pause and say, well, where did our nuclear go, which provides 90% of our clean electricity and 50% of our electricity generation across the state? And they said, you know, our last license, the last year for the licenses of the nuclear plants is 2049. So by 2050, they'll have to be replaced, which, as you know, Chris, is 
a total lie because that doesn't account for the license extension that plants around the country of the same design and vintage are seeing their lives extended to 60, 80, and possibly even longer years. Um, So they just said, yep, no license extensions, 100% renewables by 2050. Then you get the response from labor, which is, you know, we actually agree. We do want to build a clean energy future. We acknowledge that we should be moving towards carbon-free energy. However, I don't, I, Royal We, don't think that the target should be 100% renewables. It should be 100% carbon-free. And it's really important to talk about how we get there. We think we need to establish fair labor practices so that if any ratepayer money goes to project, clean energy projects across the state, they're going to be built by in-state labor that have a prevailing wage and, you know, a certain amount of labor standards set ahead of time. And also that there has to be a just transition, as they called it, for fossil fuel communities that would, you know, be out of a job or lose the economic engines of their town as coal and gas plants got retired. So it wasn't like the way it was portrayed in the media where it's all these fossil fuel execs who just hate clean energy. Mostly the goals were aligned. It's just, you know, the difference between renewable and carbon free and focusing on labor um, as a way to get there. So you would think with just a little bit of a gap between those two positions, it would be pretty quick to reconcile and get a bill passed. And, you know, I was ner- I was skeptical always, but I, I was even pretty confident in it. And so when the legislature reconvened for the spring session early this year, um, energy talks started right away. Exelon was feeling really confident, um, given their reports and statements to the public. And Suddenly, the May 31st deadline, when the spring legislative session was going to end, it just came and went, and there was nothing. That's when we last spoke, was right after the closure of Indian Point, and that's when it was on the agenda. And I think you said we have two weeks left to save these plants. Right. So just to situate that, if people have listened to your previous podcast. So it came and went, and we're just all, all of us, you know, in the pro-nuclear community working on this are like, well, well, what now? And so then both sides assured the administration and the public, no, we're still working on this. We can call legislators back. Um, And then in August, it was announced that there was an impasse in negotiations and both sides just quit. And there were the not funny thing, but the very frustrating and sort of ironic thing about it was it had nothing to do with the nuclear subsidies. Both sides largely agreed on those things. It was the issue of coal and natural gas closures and the fair labor standards. So environmentalists sort of pursued this or, again, I'm trying to be a little unbiased, but clearly it's showing. It was it's very much a burn the ship strategy where they were like, no exceptions, all coal gone by 2035, all uh, gas plants gone by 2045, 
And, you know, if there's an emergency, it's because we didn't prioritize building renewables, where basically if you destroy what we have and rely on now, we will have no choice but to move forward with renewables in order to avoid catastrophe. You know, a lot of the labor, you know, groups in the labor coalition didn't even disagree because a lot of these coal plants and natural gas plants are already reaching their natural retirement age. But there are three plants, fossil fuel plants that are relatively new that a lot of communities are invested in um, around the state that they said, you know, if we could just have exceptions for these three and environmentalists and supported by Governor Pritzker did not want any exceptions. So that's the one sticking point. The second is, funny enough, over the labor standards. You would think that the very progressive environmental coalition would support that. Instead, they came out against prevailing wage and the fair labor standards, saying that that would disproportionately hurt minority communities. We got to break that down. So prevailing wage, can you can you define that a bit better? And then I want to understand really, really well um, where they're coming from in terms of of how prevailing wage would be um, harmful to what was it? Was it minority groups? Minority communities. Yeah. So the labor groups were understandably worried about the disparities between the long term high paying jobs in nuclear and fossil fuels and the sort of low term temporary jobs in solar and wind. With the last clean energy pass bill passed in Illinois in 2016, a lot of the money that went into renewable energy projects actually went to out-of-state contracted labor. So it wasn't unionized, and it didn't even create jobs in Illinois. So this time around, they said, look, we want to know this is going to be union labor. This is going to be in-state labor, and that there will be basically a minimum wage that every project has to guarantee if it's going to go forward. Was there a dollar number on that? I want to say $15 was in the original labor bill, um, which is still like- That's very low. Yeah. So it's low, but it's, it's still a standard. It's a basement. Is that? Yeah. And I think there were like tiers to it. You know, there were, they were going to establish that. I don't know what the number ended up being, and I've sort of betrayed the end result by saying that. But yeah, the NGOs in the environmental camp pushed back and said, look, prevailing wage would disproportionately hurt um, minority communities and small businesses that are attempting to build these projects. So we don't want to do that. And the only way that you can understand that is if you know how precarious the margins on solar and wind projects are. Like for the most part, if they were required to hire labor at a prevailing wage, they would be far less lucrative than with the low wage temporary like 1099 jobs. And a lot of those facilities probably wouldn't get built. That's sort of the the stakes on the side of the environmental camp. In the end, both of those two things did get resolved, but we're talking about an energy bill passed on the day that Byron was scheduled to close. And passed with, with by one vote, I understand? or By one vote, hours before the plant was supposed to go offline. 
so I still I just think this is so interesting the way you're you know you're, you're summarizing this as a bit of a kind of environmental versus labor um, struggle and the ways in which you know the traditional progressive movement I guess I'm not sure where to slot environmentalism there but I think it's very much kind of incorporated itself into the sort of progressive or left side of the political spectrum how it's finding itself so at odds with labor and actually trying to fight against um, this um, minimum wage type requirement. So the argument is that the, the unions are predominantly white. And then if you had a uh, person of color who, or, or there's a minority community that wanted to start a project, they'd have to bring in that kind of labor aristocracy, white labor to, to build the project and it then be unaffordable. I'm just, I really want to understand this in some granular detail and, and really like give me their best argument so that we do it justice. That's exactly it. That nuclear plants are in the state of Illinois are already located in predominantly white communities, um, that the labor and the contractors associated with building, you know, renewable energy that would be associated with these renewable energy projects are also disproportionately white, that unions are disproportionately white, and that setting these labor standards would be unaffordable to minority communities looking to deploy these projects and also not res- not be equitable in that it would result in a lot more white workers um, getting these contracts as opposed to minority workers. So that's sort of the best argument, which, you know, if squinting, it can make sense. And I think everyone in, you know, on both sides was talking about what an equitable transition would look like. So clearly that's one of the values that was in this discussion. But as I, I actually went on Jacobin to talk about this and they did an entire segment on the issue of prevailing wage and they they actually came out against the environmentalists and said, look, prevailing wage is good for all people. It sort of lifts all boats. We have a lot of evidence that setting a prevailing wage and fair labor standards raises wages and labor standards across communities and across the state, not just within the unions or within whoever's getting that work. It kind of creates competition in that way where realistically, that was not the concern. I Maybe I'm too cynical, but it's just I think that these renewable energy projects become a lot less lucrative if you can't, if you are forced to use high wage unionized labor. You know, I just recorded a show on the EU green taxonomy with uh, Mirta Tripathi, and it was it was really interesting understanding sort of how legislation, and this is in the EU anyway, but how it sort of starts off in the there was a couple players in the room. In that case, it was actually just green finance and environmental NGOs. And then more and more interest got involved. And you know, before long, it turns into this enormous snowball of lobbyists and, and people with special interests, the general public, et cetera. But it's interesting the way you're describing this, because maybe I'm quite naive in terms of political decision making, but you know, you kind of think of politicians get a mandate and then they put forward legislation. And yes, there's there's you know, opinions that are taken and, and lobbying that happens. But in this case, it really seems like legislation is being written by um, different groups and then, and then and then sort of given to Congress makers or the governor to pass. I'm just trying to get a sense of how how this legislation comes together. And and I guess the sort of this, the, the number of different 
lobbies, whether that's, you know, the energy or the renewable lobby or the environmental lobby or labor, like the relative strength that they have, um, you know, what those kind of actors look like. Because I think for a lot of us, we have an idea of who the politicians are, but we don't have a great sense of um, the the size, resources, et cetera, of the other players um, in terms of making these policies. Right. So that's at least how, you know, you describing that there are these different interests writing legislation That's how this process began. You know, the Environmental Coalition put forth their own bill. Then Labor responded with their own bill. And then the Pritzker administration put forth their own bill. So from the start, we knew it was never going to be one bill. It was going to be a combination of all of these different pieces of proposed legislation. But then, yeah, it it was... I don't know. I this whole experience, I hate to report, has made me more cynical about politics in general. And um, for example, I actually went to the the environmentalist rally in Springfield. And this was at a point when their bill, their revised bill included nuclear, included a nuclear subsidy. So I thought, wait, this is great. They're talking about, you know, moving towards carbon-free, green jobs. This is my MO. I have to be there. And so I went with Sam Dotson, who is a nuclear engineering PhD at the, at UIUC. And we drove, we drove down and we brought a big banner that said, protect Illinois' largest source of carbon-free energy. And it had like a rainbow and it had Chicago's like so bright. I was like, wow, we, we just like fit in perfectly. And so they call all of the activists to the podium and are, you know, getting like stacking it for the media. And so we like, we, it's kind of a big banner, so we don't want to stand right in front. So we're on the side, like, yay, clean jobs. Like we're finally getting legislation. And (laughs) These two women come up to us, and I don't want to swear on your podcast, say, you guys need to get the F out of here. Like, what the F are you doing? Like, just, we're going to call the police. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're, we're here in support of your bill. Like, we're here for clean jobs. We want you guys to win. Like, we're, and it was this whole ordeal. We had to, you know, talk to them for like 10 minutes. They just decided to move a bunch of activists in front of us and try to like cover up our banner with other banners. And at the end, you know, after all of the speakers had spoken, after the media kind of dispersed, I I went back up to these women. I found out this was the executive director of the Illinois Environmental Council, like one of the leading groups in the environmental coalition. And I just said, you know, what, what was up? <laughs> I, I'm confused. And she said, well, you're Exelon. Nope. I, I promise you, I've never taken money from industry. And, uh, I drove down here myself, Sam, he's a student. She's like, well, you're generation atomic, which means you're paid by Exelon. I was like, what is going on here? It's like, I promise I'm here. Like I gave her a card. I, it was just this crazy interaction. And I was like, I'm here in good faith. Here's the email where you sent me information about this rally. 
So that was that was just a crazy experience where I'm like, even if you are on side, depending on and even if your cause is incorporated into the bill, like you are not welcome. These things are very gate kept. Um, and then I, you know, a few weeks later, I think it was later. I can't actually remember the order, but they, you know, then labor has to, of course, have their big rally. So we went there and it was like five or six times the size of the clean energy rally. And you have all the people in their, you know, union garb and representing their different unions. We had, you had carpenters, you had iron workers, you had um, uh, like just everyone. And it was so welcoming. And, you know, I had my same banner and you could kind of tell that they, that, uh, some of the people were like, are you sure you're in the right place? Like, are, are, are you a spy? <laughs> like, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, we got to keep these green jobs. And so it, it was a very weird experience, I think, for everyone in our group to kind of be in the, in the middle between these two things where we really cared about the climate and the green jobs aspect, but we just weren't welcome in the environmental coalition. So we were definitely got behind labor in that sense. Um, sorry, this is all very long winded, but it was, it was a long third, long and complicated 13 months of like not really having a tribe in a very tribal conflict. And in terms of, you know, things breaking down to that, that single vote in the end, um, was there like a last minute compromise or like what, what led to that, that breakthrough? Um, you know, we talk about this as being this, this great victory. I mean, it was, it squeezed past and hopefully the next victory is going to have a larger margin. Um, but you know, this was a nail biter right to the very end. Uh, a lot of people have been watching around the world and there's a lot of other jurisdictions that are in a very similar, uh, state. I mean, you just mentioned those, those facts earlier about 90% of the clean energy and more than 50% of total energy. And I'm just thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like Belgium. Right. Um, so this story is, is you know, pertinent to many other places around the world. I'm just wondering about, yeah, if you can explain that margin and, and what kind of what happened in, in the final minutes, I guess. Totally. I mean, it helped that both sides had a lot to lose. Obviously, labor, that's, you know, thousands of jobs at the nuclear plant, like direct jobs, in addition to all of the secondary jobs it creates in communities and during the outages. So they needed to keep those two nuclear plants on. On the other side, you had a bunch of solar subsidies that were set to expire. And if legislation wasn't passed, they would not be re-upped. Not only would they not be re-upped, but the subsidies that were collected, um, which were like $30 million worth of subsidies, would have to be returned to consumers, to ratepayers, and not used for these projects if they didn't pass legislation which obviously environmentalists care deeply about that. So there really just had to be a compromise. Um, in terms of what made the difference, and I think this is just for the victory overall, it was, it was, the, it was the unions. It was labor. And I think it's great that I've been on Decouple so many times, like hitting this point, because that was the first conversation you and I had ever had, like, I, re I still remember it clear as day that we jumped on and we're like, yeah, we both kind of think that 
this is an underutilized group, that it really has been left out of the energy conversation, you know, and A, that's just not right. They, you know, it's going to be workers that build a clean energy future. But B, if they're mobilized, they will be a really powerful group to fight for clean energy. And so that was really the difference here is that you had a really active labor lobby and, you know, contrast that with Diablo Canyon, where IBEW sat down with the governor and with the interest groups to write the deal that ended up dooming their plan. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to pass premature judgment. It might be one of those things where if you know that you're on the losing side, you might as well fight for as good of a deal for your men and women as possible. But there wasn't any pushback. Um, which is really unfortunate. Did this break down at all along? You know, you live in this polarized society. <laughs> Did it break down along Republican and Democrat lines or was it were things a little less clear in this regard? I mean, there was definitely thought that the environmental, you know, most very progressive and then leaning or Democrats were on the environmentalist side. A lot of Republicans and sort of right leaning people were on the labor side. But then you had champions like Sue Rezin, who has, I think, two plants in her district, who is a Republican. She said, look, like, I'm for everything. Like, I think we should be moving towards carbon free. She was very much, you know, that should be a goal to keep us competitive or stay competitive in the future. But we need to do that with nuclear and so, and you have Democrats too that cross the line to eventually get us over the edge um, on that vote. But for the most part, it was pretty divided in that way. I remember my first um, testimony in front of the legislature. You know, I submitted a comment and then was able to speak. And, you know, on one side, it's all of the environmental people, all of the justice groups, all of the progressive Illinois coalitions. Then it's like fossil fuels, <laughs> Maddie Serwinski. Like, it just stinks that that's how it ended up being. But, um, you know, that's how, unfortunately, a lot of times pro-nuclear people have to be positioned or that's where we start even if we are very climate conscious. So I think like Illinois is similar to Ontario in the sense, and maybe even to France where, you know, the uh, huge amount of the power comes from nuclear, but the average person on the street isn't aware of it or doesn't think about it. So like in advocating for these plants, like did it become an issue that, that percolated through to a lot of Illinoisans consciousness? Um, Cause I think just when people learn that, wow, yeah, actually this whole, when I flip on the switch or when I, um, you know, ride this elevator. It's it's coming from the friendly Adam. Um, it, like, did it put it on the agenda? Did people start speaking diff differently about nuclear in the in the popular press? Did that was that a bit of a breakthrough as well, or no? Well, one one of the other really difficult things we started off with in this fight is an, a scandal out of ComEd. So basically, the Speaker of our House was giving contracts. I mean, it gets really messy, but basically there was this huge corruption scandal. The guy had to step down out of politics. Um, ComEd had to pay this huge fine. It was criminally investigated. So now after that story breaks across the state, 
we're asking for subsidies for Exelon, which ComEd is basically synonymous with Exelon. And so that was the narrative we were fighting against, where they're like, oh, so we're going to give even more subsidies to bail out corrupt Exelon. That's great. Like all of our politicians are in the pocket of Exelon. And it was so frustrating because, you know, with the the 2016 legislation that protected Quad Cities and Clinton, that actually ended up saving ratepayers money on their bills. The nuclear subsidy lowered electricity bills to consumers. I've heard you say that before. How how did that work? It's just like the the way that the legislation is built, it acts as a hedge against volatile electricity prices. So that's something we've also talked about with this new bill. Like look at what we're seeing with natural gas. This acts as a hedge against volatile natural gas prices. Any for I don't remember exact if it's the same mechanism for the past bill, but for this bill, any price above the nuclear capacity clearing price gets returned to consumers. So it's not just kept for Exelon. That's not just added profits. So we were saying, you know, this could actually save you money. And I know that it sucks that like no one wants to be seen helping Exelon, including me, because they were a huge proponent of electricity markets in the early 2000s. They just thought, oh, we'll we'll dominate if we do this. Our nuclear plants will just outcompete everything. And then when the game got changed and gas was cheap and renewables were subsidized, they they had to lie in that bed that they made. However, it's like, don't, this is not for Exelon. This is for jobs in the state. This is for keeping electricity bills low for ratepayers. This is for preserving the crown jewels of our carbon-free economy. You know, it but it I acknowledge that that was really difficult a difficult narrative to be up against. That was sort of the prevailing popular opinion for nuclear. Unfort I think it got a little better with us policing the media over the course of the campaign where now they'll at least admit in the headline it's carbon-free, but it was it was a long struggle to get there. What was was the media like? Were you able to get stories into the media? Was it were you locked out more or less, or how did that play out? Um, we were lucky. We had, I mean, I had um, an op ed in the Chicago Tribune and two in the Daily Herald. Um, we had our Mothers for Nuclear Chicago write a piece that got into the Tribune. So to be fair, a lot of um, people. In our, in our little pro-nuclear community did get some coverage. But, I mean, the predominant voices were, this is a bailout. Um, the nuclear plants are struggling. I mean, it, it's just very frustrating to have to combat that narrative that says these old dying nuclear plants when they're in their prime. Like, they're young and can continue to operate for decades, and there's just no journalistic responsibility in that sense. I want a couple more things before we close. I definitely want to kind of get some lessons uh, for allies around the world dealing with a similar situation. I know that each each uh, context is quite specific, uh, but maybe we can abstract some of those those lessons. But in terms of uh, this being a victory, is this is this a pyrrhic victory? Is this sort of like a five-year thing that's going to get reevaluated? Are those plants safe? Um, Palisades is another Illinois plant. I think that's scheduled to close. That's in Michigan, but okay. yeah. very nearby. 
Yeah. So what I would say is I definitely think we all have anyone who contributed to this effort has a lot to be proud of. And I definitely am taking the time to, you know, feel a sense of relief, feel a sense of pride. But I would say there's so much work to be done and we don't want to, you know, compromise just because we got this win. You know, I, I see a lot of people using Illinois and some of the Jennifer Granholm's tweets as evidence that the Biden administration is totally pro-nuclear and we've really turned the tide and our work is, you know, not done, but we're winning so hard. And then I saw the Department of Energy publish a solar futures report that has nuclear providing 5% of U.S. electricity by 2030. 2030. And they're walking around, you know, going to solar homes in Berkeley. They're going, you know, Biden is giving his um, Build Back Better talk in front of NREL with wind turbines behind his back. Like, I, I acknowledge, I think everyone should acknowledge how far we've come since I even started in 2017. But it is not time to let up. Um, there, we should not be seeing friends where there aren't any. If that makes sense. Do you think the impact of the closure of of Indian Point give them any pause in Illinois, or was that you know we saw that the uh, that Indian Point's closure resulted in a replacement, basically one for one with fossil fuels? Like, did that kind of information percolate out to Illinois, having such an example, you know, from the same part of the country and, and understanding what the impacts would have been of Byron and Dresden closing? I definitely think so. We were so lucky that the students at UIUC were so active and engaged. I mean, we had weekly meetings over Zoom and they actually hosted their ANS chapter hosted an educational webinar for policymakers, and they really walked through that whole thing. And so it was great where you you had young experts in nuclear and electricity answering policymakers' questions. And yeah, that was absolutely one of the main things that, that they used. Um, I'm not sure that that really got into the local media, but definitely it was big nationally. And we pushed that, you know, sent those out to policymakers at every chance we got. You know, it's being a grassroots activist, you're not on the inside. So we are just doing everything we can and hoping that something is sticking. So it's sort of hard to see what played the biggest role. I'm not sure if it was that or showing that past legislation had saved ratepayers money or showing how much clean energy the nuclear plants produce versus the $1.5 billion solar fleet in Illinois that generates 0.5% of our electricity. <laughs> it's hard to say, but um, Indian Point, we definitely tried to be as loud as we could about that and use that as a strong warning for what we didn't want to happen to our state. So looking towards the next uh, major battle line, um, would that be, is that Diablo Canyon? Is that Palisades? Um, what, what sort of lessons can you extend from Illinois? I mean, this, you've, you've got the campaign for Green Nuclear Deal, which is uh, you know, very national uh, to the whole uh, U.S. Um, there's allies around the world that are, that are sort of, I think, you know, beginning grassroots um, activism in, in a whole number of countries. Um, so more specifically, though, what sort of lessons can you offer from Illinois to 
folks at Palisades or folks at Diablo Canyon or, or us folks up here in uh, Ontario with Pickering. Right. I think, like I mentioned before, the number one thing is labor will absolutely turn the tide if they are activated. So just reaching out to the, I mean, I made a spreadsheet of all of the labor unions associated with Byron and Dresden. I called each one, called and emailed each one and wanted to make sure they were involved, wanted them on an email list so they knew everything that we were up to. I had union stewards at all of the Illinois plants letting me know what they were hearing inside or, you know, offering to hop on these webinars. So that that's my number one is the strongest advocates. And I'm saying this as an advocate myself, but the strongest advocates for nuclear plants are the people that keep them operating 24 seven, 365. And, th- and those people, those people tend to be completely ignored by the, like the broader labor movement. That's what really blows my mind. So I've found in my experience reaching out to those folks, they they haven't really been reached out to by anybody else. Absolutely. And they want to help. They I mean, they they uh, in their communities printed yard signs and put together Facebook groups before we were even on this. So you'll find that there is a lot of energy and it and it's I think a lot of people see it as like selfish, right? Like, oh, they just want to keep their jobs. How dare they? Yeah, I it's so upsetting for so many reasons, but they truly do care about their communities. It's I mean, it's their livelihoods, it's their families, but it's also where they've established homes. It's the schools that their children's go to or their children go to. It's the public services. There's a lot of reasons for those people to be fighting for their plants. And then I would also say, you know, it it really is important to have this community. So we had a WhatsApp group with, you know, students, um, workers, advocates, advocates from all over the country, even not just Illinois. And we had a weekly Zoom call and none of us really do this professionally. I mean, I guess I'm like one of the only full time advocates, but even I don't have like a, it's just kind of, I make it up as I go along. So we're like, Hey, how about we go to Springfield and with a bunch of donuts and a sign that says donut close our largest source of carbon free <laughs> energy and like give them to policymakers and try to just talk to as many as we can. It's like, how about we phone bank? How about we host a webinar? You know, if you have a group of active people and you can put your heads together, you'll be surprised how far that these sort of homemade efforts can actually go to the point where, yeah, we were able to get in the media. We were quoted as part of our group because we were so active and we looked so different from both paid lobbies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and and I know like you have been that champion for Canada. There are leaders around the world that we're seeing, especially highlighted right now as it's stand up for nuclear season. So it is happening. I mean, looking at Germany and seeing how far they've come since my first visit in 2017, where now you have really high up political leaders talking about making nuclear a priority for a carbon free future. Um, that's huge. So we're definitely 
for all the cynicism I've just spouted off for the past hour, there's definitely a lot of reason to believe that momentum is on our side, that we are winning. They're not ignoring us anymore. We are threatening that the sort of uh, party line and we just got to keep pushing. Um, just, just that, I guess that closing question was as well. Um, is this, is this a, a permanent victory? Is this, you can, you can rest for a, a few, a few years here knowing that those plants are safe or is there, is there, is there some permanence to it? It's so it's a subsidy over the course of five years. Okay. But I mean, anything is possible depending on who gets into office next. If they want to dismantle that, it's it's politics. Anything is possible. Right. So I'm not taking anything for granted. Um, I I mean, in terms of priority, there are, you know, we've got Palisades and Diablo Canyon. I think Illinois is relatively safe. But I want to save those other plants that are on the chopping block in the next three years. And I want to hit at the national level, too. We just cannot keep spending 13 months in each state on campaigns just to save nuclear that it, sh it should just be a no brainer at this point. And so we need to get legislation at the national level protecting all of our existing nuclear and then talk about building AP 1000s on all existing sites. Have you been hearing any whispers of um, rising natural gas prices um, at all impacting this decision or maybe impacting future decisions? You, you talked about of, that hedge against volatility. I thought that was a really interesting, interesting right. take. So natural gas in the U.S. sort of became expensive after this decision was made. We sort of saw it right on the heels of this. But it, it was the perfect proof of what we just accomplished, where Americans are looking very closely at what's happening in Europe and deciding that they really need to be careful on a reliance on just-in-time natural gas, even domestically, um, where any any profits that the nuclear plants make are going back to ratepayers, and we've just locked in cheap, abundant, carbon-free electricity for our state's future for the next, you know, up to 20 years and then some. We'll see how how that ends up, sh how Europe ends up changing the discourse, both in terms of like state politics and battle at Palisades, but also at the national level. Yeah, no, we we live in interesting times for sure. And I'm, I am fascinated to see what happens in Europe and whether these gas price spikes will will pause um, anything going on in terms of the atom exits in, in Germany or in Belgium. Maddie, uh, great to have you back. Um, thank you so much for shining a bit of a light on this. Um, I know it's, we meant to get this out a couple of weeks ago, but we had some scheduling issues and I think you lost your voice maybe from uh, all your campaigning. Um, yeah. but it's, <laughs> yes, very much it, so. It's, uh, it's great to have you back and I hope you do take a bit of rest, but looking forward to, uh, to seeing what's, what's coming next from the campaign for Green Nuclear Deal. Do you have any spoilers for us? Is there any, any campaign in the... Uh, well, I, I had planned on taking at least like a week or two off uh, after Illinois. I was just like so I was feeling so deflated leading up to it. And then the vote passed and I was like, and now we're on to Palisades. Like, <laughs> let's start making a group. So I, so we're already in deep uh, on that. 
But right. yeah, I, I'm excited too, because I mean, like I said, Illinois just took up so much time, but right. campaign for green nuclear deal is definitely taking, uh, taking a national look again. And so we've got some things coming down the pipeline for this fall in terms of policy, but also some campaign stuff and, uh, Nothing that I want want to spoil yet, but you will be the first to know. It will be a decouple exclusive. You heard it first on decouple. Okay, (laughs) Maddie. Thanks again for making the time. Take care, Chris. Okay, bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.